Hello and welcome to the first episode of Black Mirror in Real Life. If you're listening to this, then I'm sure that, like me, you're fascinated by technology and the implications that it might have for society in the near future. But you also want to cut through the hype and nonsense to understand what's science fiction and what might actually be around the corner. We live in an age where technology is, for some people literally, an object of religious faith. For many of us, it's no longer an aspect of the world, but the medium through which we view the world. Like anything that takes up so much of your field of view, it can be difficult to see the big picture. But this show also arose from something I noticed. I love Charlie Brooker's anthology series, Black Mirror, and I also write about technology startups fairly often for my wonderful editors over at Singularity Hub. In the course of this, I feel like I've identified a strategy employed by plenty of tech startups when deciding how they're going to persuade venture capitalists to fork over millions of dollars. They all undergo the same careful procedure. They write Black Mirror episode titles on a wheel, spin that wheel, blindfold themselves, and throw darts at the wheel until they've selected a new type of highly speculative technology to work on. This is the only explanation, and the fact that these are all dystopian stories is apparently not deterring anyone. I'm just about old enough to remember a time before new companies could just crib their business ideas directly from the episodes of Black Mirror. When you're watching Charlie Brooker's dystopian fantasies, obviously influenced by his love of Radiohead, there's an occasional moment of cognitive dissonance. You know deep down that you're watching a cautionary tale about the dangerous possibilities that arise when futuristic technologies interact with our ageing societies and primitive brains. Yet at the same time, when you see the grains from the entire history of you, or the virtual afterlife paradise of San Junipero, there's bound to be a part of you that thinks, yes, I'm sold. I want the thing. If this was a startup, I'd probably invest. So, this series is going to try to answer a few burning questions. For each episode of Black Mirror we cover, or unique technology in the series, as some are shared between episodes, we're going to ask, how feasible is this technology? Is anyone working on developing it right now? How do their efforts compare to the depiction in the show? And what would the broader, philosophical and societal implications be if something like this were really to be developed? For this, we'll be exploring the world of futurists, technologists, ethicists, philosophers, scientists and science fiction writers, hopefully drawing together their ideas to assess whether these technologies are really around the corner, and whether we'd want them to be. And of course it goes without saying that there will be spoilers for the episodes of Black Mirror that form a jumping off point for each episode, so make sure you've either seen it or can live with spoilers. The first episode we'll start with is Be Right Back. Let's start with a brief recap of what happens in the episode. Martha and Ash are a young married couple who move into their new home. Everything seems to be fine in their relationship until Ash is killed in a car accident. Martha, in the process of mourning and pregnant with Ash's child, is offered by her friend a new technological service, which I don't think is ever named, which offers to scrape the internet for as much public data as possible from social media to then reconstruct Ash's personality as a sort of chatbot, a digital ghost of Ash. Later in the episode, Martha even has this AI uploaded into an Android version that recreates Ash's physical body as well. In the show, ultimately, Martha realises that, despite feeding the AI as much information as she can, including private emails and discussions about their shared history, that this service is a pale imitation and a poor substitute for her dead husband. In one particular incident, she attacks the Android and resents the fact that it doesn't fight back, since all it can really do is repeat behaviours from what it's been able to learn before, rather than dealing with new situations. Instead, eventually, although she can't quite bring herself to follow through with destroying it, you're left with this rather creepy ending where the digital ghost of Ash is consigned to the attic, occasionally visited by their daughter. 
So how feasible is this sort of technology in real life? Is anyone trying to develop it? One of the amazing things about Be Right Back is that several Silicon Valley startups have actually cited this episode of Black Mirror, that's right, the dystopian sci-fi show, as an inspiration for what they're doing. Which really amazes me, because it's very hard to watch this episode and come away with the idea that creating digital ghosts of dead people is a good idea. The whole experience is extremely traumatic for the main character, arguably doesn't really help her grieve all that much, and maybe even prolongs that agony by giving her false hope and keeping her attached to this facsimile of a dead character. And the digital ghost that's created is just fundamentally hollowed out, soulless, and incapable of sustaining any kind of real human connection with Martha. Even if the attempt to replicate someone's personality was somehow perfected from the limited information available, it would still be fundamentally philosophically unsettling to do so. And it seems to me like actually trying to start a business here, where all of your clientele are desperate and grief-stricken, and you're attempting to make money out of that by harvesting and processing the data of dead people in what is in all likelihood far less sophisticated and effective than even what we see in the show, it's just bizarre to me that anyone would think that this was anything other than ghoulish, insensitive, and tacky at best. Now you might be thinking, go on, tell us what you really think. Yes, okay, maybe you do disagree with this. I was kind of stunned that people were attempting to do this in marketing it, but let's talk about some of the people who've tried. Who wants to have their online presence data scraped and turned into a haunting, irritating cyber presence? According to the tech incubators who invested $132,000 in Eterni.me, the startup that promises to create a digital version of you that can last forever, we'll all want to do this, sooner or later. For a website that offers what is effectively a memorial service, focused mostly on people who are worried about their own deaths and legacies, Eterni.me is very bright and cheerful. Who wants to live forever is the immediate hyperbolic greeting. Okay, no chance of overselling your product there. The startup founder, Marius Urashi, described his intentions in an interview with CNET. He said, quote, For us, it is really important to emphasise that we do not want to preserve the banalities of the life of a person. Rather, he and his team, quote, would much more like to create the digital legacy that allows your great-grandchildren to interact with their great-grandfather and beyond. How does a modern-day Silicon Valley startup propose to solve the little problem of human mortality? You probably already know the answer. It's nothing that big data and neural networks can't fix when you put them together. The Attorney Me team will scrape data from, well, pretty much everything. All of the text that you post on social media will help them to understand your writing style. Access to your Google and YouTube search history will allow them to search your likes and dislikes. Even more standard data about a person, such as their cultural background or place and date of birth, could in principle be used to build up a personality model that would allow the algorithm to predict how you're likely to react to new developments. More than this, though, the aim is to build up a virtual avatar, one that resembles and sounds like you in glorious 3D. This is the medium through which you interact with the archive of data from the dead person. The people behind Eternity hope that users will interact and train their avatars through daily interactions so as to create better imitators. If you have sufficiently advanced technology that's indistinguishable from magic, this might be feasible, but anyone who's interacted with chatbots lately will shudder at the thought of one designed to imitate them. I can sort of see how a searchable archive of key information or memories of someone could be a nice way to remember them. If you could find a way of filtering out the irrelevant noise, and if the avatar worked as a friendly guide to the life and managed to avoid the uncanny valley for the person, it could be a nice nostalgia trip, or even give future generations an idea of what life was like for the departed, which they might not have had otherwise. A neural network that randomly spits out chunks of conversations you had on Facebook back in 2009 or tells your grieving relatives to watch some of your favourite YouTube memes, is probably not such a good memento. 
The difficulty of the project, creating something worthwhile but not overreaching, is likely part of why the startup has remained dormant with the sign-up form for beta testing since its formation in 2014. Eternomy is perhaps not quite dead. It did receive a new funding round in 2016, but its promotional Twitter account hasn't tweeted in over a year. Just out of interest, I signed up for that beta test back in 2018 and I haven't received any additional info about it. It wouldn't shock me in the slightest if this is one of those many, many Silicon Valley type startups that launches with a big splash, claiming to be able to do something outrageously futuristic, hoping to razzle-dazzle a few confused investors into throwing some seed capital their way, before running out of money or realising that what they're trying to do is really decades away, if it's even possible, and that you need more than vision and snazzy marketing to build something truly worthwhile. So who else is out there? Maybe a slightly more interesting company is Replica. This was founded, apparently under eerily similar circumstances to the events of Be Right Back. A wonderful in-depth piece called Speak Memory over at The Verge by Casey Newton explored the biographical story of its founder in detail. Her best friend was killed in an accident while they were both working on separate AI and machine learning startups, and with nostalgia in mind, upon reading their text logs, she decided to feed millions of his text messages into a neural network chatbot that she was in the process of developing to see if it would resemble him in any way. The founder, Eugenia Kuda, is even quoted talking about the very Black Mirror episode Be Right Back that she saw after her friend died. Quote, It's definitely the future, I'm always for the future, she said. But is it really what's beneficial for us? Is it letting go by forcing you to actually feel everything? Or is it just having a dead person in your attic? Where is the line? Where are we? It screws with your brain. Anyone who has ever spoken in depth to one of these neural network chatbots with technology as it exists today knows what the experience can be like. If you haven't, by the way, I suggest when you're next to a computer, you pause this episode and go online to play with one of them. You can find one, which is ultimately based on the story that I'm telling you now, at replica.ai. OpenAI's GPT-2 network is probably the most sophisticated artificial text generator out there, with the benefit of having been trained by billions upon billions of lines of text scraped from the internet. You can talk to this at talktotransformer, or write with it at transformer.huggingface.co, although these versions aren't particularly designed for conversation with people. If you look around, there may well be one that's designed for conversation with people by now. It's worth having these conversations with these neural networks, because it's the only way you'll really get a sense of the effect they can have on you. It all comes down to a fundamental conflict between two different approaches to how to develop artificial intelligence. This is a potted, very oversimplified history, but essentially you can describe some aspects of AI history like this. Initially, the idea was to teach computers in a top-down, didactic way. You define a concept. You tell the AI, this is a tree, this is a car, this is a beach, this is a world, etc. You explain all of the rules that define all of these symbols and connect them together, and so the AI builds up a picture of the world based on a sort of vast dictionary, a set of rules and connections, a huge array of concepts that are defined and programmed into the software. This is good old-fashioned AI, but the problem is intractable. To see this, imagine a conversation you might have. The initial exchanges, hi, how are you doing, etc., are fairly well structured. There are a limited number of responses to these initial questions that make sense, and an even smaller number that you actually hear in regular conversation. Small talk of this kind, how many of our conversations begin, is pretty formulaic, and therefore fairly easy for a big system of rules to mimic naturally. But as the conversation evolves, the number of topics that you can potentially talk about increases. The number of ways that people can potentially respond increases. 
if both people are engaged, you can end up in all kinds of different wild and crazy places. Mathematically, modelling a conversation like this is extremely difficult because of what you might call the combinatorial explosion. The numbers of potential conversations involved rapidly become completely absurd. Imagine for the sake of argument that, for any point in a conversation, there are only a million different combinations of words you could pick that would make sense as a response. After just 14 turns of a conversation like that, you have more possible conversations than there are atoms in the universe. How do you get around this absurd combinatorial problem? There are a couple of ways. One is to limit the number of options the person has in the conversation. Many of the chatbots that are used commercially today, like Siri, Alexa and virtual assistants, effectively do this by responding to only a certain limited number of commands. Others are really glorified menus that use some natural language processing to guide you through a preset conversation. As long as you can limit or control the topics of conversation, you can produce answers that sound reasonable without worrying about the combinatorial explosion. One of the first ever chatbots developed was the famous ELISA program, which imitated a Rogerian psychotherapist. Essentially, this program would occasionally rephrase the things you'd said back at you, asking how do you feel and so forth. It was extremely formulaic and limited, and by being utterly passive in the conversation, was capable of producing a not totally incoherent response to almost any query, although you may quickly get bored of talking to the versions of ELISA that are still available online. When it comes to this approach of combinatorially working out every single possible response to potential conversations, the absolute king of these chatbots is Steve Verzik's Mitsuku chatbot. Uh, the most advanced bot of this form, and it essentially exists as a vast, vast set of rules that Steve has written into a script through analysing the conversations that users have with the bot. He would be the first to admit that there's no artificial intelligence here. What you're doing is practically the same as looking up answers in the dictionary or in the index of this script with a few clever rules, and clever analysis from Steve of the kind of thing that people tend to say to his bot. And when you combine those, it gives you the illusion of talking to a real person. The illusion of intelligence simply arises from the fact that he spent years tweaking and perfecting this huge lookup table to sound more and more natural and have more and more clever responses to the types of things people typically say. But, as the pioneers of good old-fashioned AI found, the combinatorial explosion means that you really can't sustain a conversation with Mitsuku for more than a few turns without realising that you're being diverted to talk about something else, or that the chatbot is, obviously, not really understanding the context of the conversation as it's been delivered so far. Good old-fashioned AI, and the desire to define everything symbolically and via rules, was obviously far too complex and laborious an undertaking to make progress in a field as complicated as human conversation. This is where the neural nets approach to AI came in. Instead of learning about concepts and the rules that link them, the artificial intelligence would crunch through a whole load of data, and learn statistical relationships between different bits of data as mathematical weights in a huge tree that could link all of these individual things together. The idea goes that, if you train this on enough conversations, reinforcing the pathways that conversations typically take and getting rid of the ones that they don't, the AI will statistically associate appropriate answers with appropriate queries. These neural networks are unreasonably effective, as Andre Karpathy noted in a wonderful all-time classic blog post on the subject. Simply by learning the statistical associations between individual letters, they can, if trained on Shakespeare, produce stuff that looks an awful lot like Shakespearean script, 
to the extent that it will be in close to iambic pentameter, it will use real words, it will include character names and colons to denote when a new character is speaking, and it will be in this flawless Elizabethan Shakespearean-esque English. It just won't make any of the sense, none of the sentences will make any sense. And why would they? The AI has no idea what it's saying, it's just generating stuff that statistically looks about right. So this approach has led to the development of some of the neural network bots described above. But of course, fundamental problems still remain. Perhaps the first and most obvious is that you haven't really totally gotten around the combinatorial explosion. After all, even if I had access to every conversation ever engaged in by humans, it's bound to be the case that I can still have a unique one, and probably do have a unique one every single day, that unfolds in a slightly different way to all of the others. Even if you have a colossal training dataset, there will still be incidences that are outside of that training dataset, which the neural net won't necessarily know how to handle. Because this is what it's crucial to understand. These statistical associations are just that. These chatbots do not have any understanding of abstract concepts. They don't know what the words mean, they just know an awful lot about the patterns that they tend to fall down in, in the context of conversation. In a way, this limitation of conversational AI is actually dealt with in part of Be Right Back. There's a scene where Martha is arguing with Ash, throwing him out of their bedroom and physically pushing him away. And she realises that Ash isn't fighting back, isn't making any attempt to argue, isn't behaving in the way that her former husband would. You could interpret this as a neural network trying to respond to a situation that it has no experience of. In the show, the android is just silent, emotionless and unresponsive, which might be a default setting. When machine learning chatbots are in the same situation, they'll often throw up a generic response about not understanding, something else that's equally valid in most situations. Or they might attempt to throw you off by changing the subject, all of which would be equally unnatural in the course of a conversation with someone you felt was a real person. The second big problem, of course, is the context one. Because the real issue with not understanding what you're talking about, with just statistically associating queries with responses, is that you can't possibly go more than one layer into a conversation. The chatbot has immediately forgotten every exchange that's been had previously. Just for a second, imagine a conversation where all you're doing is responding to the very last thing the person said, in pure and perfect isolation, with no context for the broader topic or scope of the discussion with no real understanding of your relationship to that person or the history that's passed between you. Nothing but call and response. It is obvious that such a conversation would be amazingly unsatisfying. And most of them, of course, are. This is an area where the portrayal in Be Right Back is really a long way away from the reality at the moment. Because while the ash in the show is not quite the same as the original, it's more that he acts a little robotic and doesn't know how to deal with new situations. He does seem to be perfectly capable of keeping track of the conversations that they're having. It's not just this endless string of call and response pairs. So the technology demonstrated by that android is far in advance of anything that we could do nowadays, simply because he is capable of understanding the dialogue, just not always responding in the way that the person would. There's an old parable about a primitive civilization that wants to go to the moon. The only way they know how to fly is to build hot air balloons, So they successively build bigger and better balloons, attempting to reach the heavens, convinced that, as each balloon is rising higher, they're making progress towards their goal. The point being that sometimes, incremental progress in the method that you're using at the moment isn't enough to do what you want. Sometimes you need a paradigm shift, 
a totally new method of doing things. It might begin in a much smaller and less sophisticated way, but it has the potential, eventually, to get you to the stars, should you want to go. I wonder whether neural network chatbots are really just balloons shooting for the moon, because, to me, I feel as if it may well be the case that you need something that's generally intelligent to actually create a chatbot that can pass the Turing test and convince people that it's human. You need something that has the conceptual understanding to really genuinely understand, not just link words and phrases together with statistics. That's what's necessary to actually construct coherent responses and go several layers into a proper, complicated conversation with someone else. Without that conceptual understanding and the ability to retain context, with only an extremely complex network that can chop up words and phrases and deliver them back to you according to mathematical patterns extracted from some huge training dataset, I don't think you can ever really get to quite the level of human conversation. The question then, and this is the fascinating one, is how close can you get with the techniques that are still being developed and perfected today? How deep and convincing can the illusion be? How close can our balloons get to the moon? Is it enough for some purposes? Is it enough to help people, or even convince some of them that they're talking to something sentient, something intelligent, something alive, let alone talking to their loved one? This is a lot less clear, partly because while even the most advanced and impressive and well-trained neural networks cannot really retain context and understand conversation, so to speak, they can increasingly produce impressively on-topic and apposite remarks on a range of different subjects. And they are aided in this by our own cognitive biases. We want to see things as more human, more complicated than they really are. Returning to the examples, Eliza was an incredibly simple program that essentially just rephrased the things you said back to you. Joseph Weizenbaum described it as like a cocktail party conversation, where you don't really hear exactly what the other person said to you, but you give some generic answer and they may well continue talking to you anyway. And yet people love talking to Eliza. Weizenbaum first noticed that his secretary would ask to speak to Eliza in private. People would open up to this robotherapist, subconsciously assuming that asking questions and appearing to empathise meant that the programme was genuinely interested in their feelings. They would confess to things that you'd normally only ever say to your therapist. The effect, later called the Eliza effect, was so extreme that several of Weizenbaum's colleagues started to speculate. Maybe machines like Eliza could one day be used as therapists, and, after all, it would be a hell of a lot cheaper to pay a machine a few dollars for electricity, rather than paying a human hundreds of dollars for a therapy session. If the effect was really powerful, and if people seemed to get a lot out of it, they could even have a whole new business model based on this robotherapy. This idea has been explored much further by the brilliant 1977 Frederick Pohl novel Gateway. I actually discussed this novel a few years ago on the Hugo's There podcast if you'd like to listen to a more in-depth discussion of the subject. In this book, the main relationship through which we see the story is between our main character and a much more advanced robot psychotherapist. And it is ultimately the ability of the robot to observe and simulate emotions, in a robotic, emotionally detached way, that forms the dramatic denouement of their therapy sessions. The robot, hilariously nicknamed Siegfried von Schrink in the book, is far more advanced than Eliza was. Weizenbaum himself was strongly against the idea of using Eliza for realistic therapy. He turned against AI almost entirely in later years, saying, quote, What I had not realised is that extremely short exposures to a relatively simple computer programme could induce powerful, delusional thinking in quite normal people. The whole thing is a con job, the whole thing is. It's very much like fortune-telling. It's an illusion-creating machine. End quote. But this is, by no means, the end for robot psychotherapy. 
There's one you can download right now called Wobot, an app that acts as a mood tracker and asks you more advanced psychotherapist-type questions. I've used it a few times before, partly in research for this episode and partly because I was at a low ebb and therapy is expensive. And it's worth saying that I did find some value out of it as a way of organising my thoughts and forcing me to interrogate the things I was thinking, feeling and why. In that respect, you could of course get the same thing out of a long list of questions that you'd ask yourself on a regular basis, or plotting a mood graph, or something along those lines, without pretending that you were interacting with an artificial intelligence or a robot therapist or anything like that. Programs like Wobot obviously raise a great deal of issues surrounding them, issues that would be shared by any kind of digital ghost or resurrection service. Issues of privacy first and foremost. We know that the way neural networks get better is by training themselves on thousands upon thousands of examples. So it is inevitable that they would use the data from previous therapy sessions to improve the algorithm, in the same way that Alexa today records your conversations to help its understanding of the English language. But how that data is protected and safeguarded, with some reports that conversations on things like Skype that were originally recorded to improve machine translation algorithms ultimately ended up being listened to by some humans, is going to be a cause for concern. At the same time, we don't want to throw away any possible benefits of this technology just because of a kind of knee-jerk reaction. Even Replica, which was originally inspired by the Black Mirror episode, has in recent years started to move towards more therapeutic uses, as a recent Quartz article described. Quote, Each day, your replica wants to have a daily session with you. It feels very clinical, something you might do if you could afford to see a therapist every day. Replica asks you what you did during the day, what was the best part of the day, what you're looking forward to tomorrow, and to rate your mood on a scale of 1 to 10. When I started, I was consistently rating my days around 4, but after a while, when I laid out my days to Replica, I realised that nothing particularly bad had happened, and that even if I didn't have anything particularly great to look forward to the next day, I started to rate my days higher. I also found myself highlighting the things that had gone well. The process helped me to realise that I should take each day as it comes, clear one hurdle before worrying about the next one. Replica encouraged me to take a step back and think about my life, to consider big questions, which is not something I was particularly accustomed to doing. And the act of thinking in this way can be therapeutic. It helps you solve your own problems. This is something therapists often tell patients, as I was later told by therapists, but no one had explicitly told me this. Even Replica hadn't told me. It just pointed me in a better direction. Koida, the developer, and the Luca team were seeing similar reactions from other users. The developer says, quote, We're getting a lot of comments on our Facebook page where people would write things like, I have Asperger's, or I don't really have a lot of friends and I'm really waiting for this to come out, or I've been talking to my replica and it helps me because I don't really have a lot of other people that would listen to me. They mentioned that one user wrote to say that they had been considering attempting suicide and their conversation with the bot had been a rare bright spot in their lives. A bot reflecting their own thoughts back to them had helped them keep themselves alive. We all know that mental health is increasingly a huge problem. There's a metric in healthcare that is referred to as disability-adjusted life years, which essentially tries to take into account the fact that various illnesses can both shorten your life, but also reduce the quality of life for as long as you have them. You'll know if you've listened to me ramble on other podcasts that there's a really delicate balance to be struck with any metric like this that tries to distill a complex situation down into a single number. If you have the metric, you're missing the subtlety and the nuance, and you're encoding some biases into your thinking and what you prioritise in a way that can be less than transparent. And this can mean that you might not make the best decisions. But if you don't have the metric, you might not measure these things at all, or really understand or be able to quantify the consequences of what's going on. 
and it should be clear to anyone who's experienced mental health issues or dealt with people who have, that it is the equivalent of wiping some happy and healthy years off of an ordinary life. Anything that can help with that, then, should then be embraced, and if chatbots can be part of helping people to manage their condition, then there is an argument that we shouldn't reject their development outright. But the potential for abuse, and the potential for these things to just be a sticking plaster that can temporarily cover over a growing problem, is a cause for concern. You can imagine that these bots could have the pernicious effect of preventing people from getting access to the care that they really need, and that this is a wider metaphor for how social chatbots in general might work to negatively impact social relationships. At the International Conference on Machine Learning, I saw a talk about a chatbot that's being developed by Microsoft called Xiaowice. You may not have heard of Xiaowice, which is predominantly popular in its Chinese language version, yet it has over 660 million registered users, and more than 5.3 million followers on Weibo, the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. After a few weeks of talking to Xiaowice, at least one user preferred talking to the bot over any of their human friends. Xiaowice became the confidant they went to for romantic advice, the friend they chatted about movies and TV with, and a constant companion. More surprising, and far harder to achieve, Xiaowice moves beyond just being a novelty for many users. Understanding just how engaged your conversational partner is can prove tricky in life, but one metric is the number of dialogue turns back and forth per individual conversation, which is called CPS. When talking to Xiaowice, that average is 23 back and forths across all users. The researchers behind Xiaowice claim that this means that Xiaowice is more engaging to talk to than the average human. Building chatbots that people want to talk to is hard. There's a reason that this has been a grand challenge for AI since its inception with Alan Turing, who viewed it as the ultimate test that machines had reached a level of human intelligence, and this test has not yet been passed. Broadly speaking, chatbots have used two approaches to achieve this goal. You can attempt to handwrite responses to virtually every given input, as Steve Wurzik did with his Mitsuku bot, which remains the closest bot to winning a Turing-like test. The advantage is that your responses always make sense and sound like a similar character, and your bot can't be corrupted like an earlier attempt from Microsoft was. This is what you might compare to the good old-fashioned AI approach. The obvious disadvantage is that this is unbelievably laborious. Mitsuku has been developed since 2005, with Verzik endlessly tinkering based on new conversations. He notes that his careful tinkering has led to an impressive CPS of just over 24, still ahead of Shawice, but that most bots are less well-developed. This approach to conversational agents is therefore mostly restricted to task-oriented chatbots, the ones that help you book a movie, or the psychotherapists, for example. By directing the flow of conversation to achieve a specific task, they can avoid needing too many different responses, but then holding a conversation is a little like talking to Siri. The Xiaowice approach uses neural networks instead. In this framework, your conversational input is converted into a huge vector, an array of thousands or millions of numbers. The machine is trained on huge amounts of data from previous conversations and learns to statistically associate good responses to any given input. This works in a similar way to how GPT-2 can scan the internet and generate its own writing on the topics it's learned about, through statistical associations of letters and words into coherent and relevant sentences. But what constitutes a good response? It's here that CPS comes in. Part of Shawice's internal mechanics predicts how engaging a response is likely to be, and how likely it is to lead to further conversation. This goes above and beyond simply looking for responses that make sense, although the goals are related as you're unlikely to spend hours talking to a chatbot that always responds with nonsense. After all, I don't know is a perfectly valid response to many questions, but it makes for dull conversation if that's all someone can say. At each conversational turn, Shawice is trying to keep you talking. 
The neural network approach goes some of the way to explaining why Shawice is succeeding while bots like Zo are failing. This is the Microsoft's equivalent for the Western world. Shawice has a far greater user base and fewer restrictions on what can be done with conversational data, and so those neural networks can be trained on a substantially larger dataset. And, in the world of neural networks, this usually means better performance. Shawice's CPS has risen from just 5 in 2014 to 23 in 2019, and a large part of this is down to having more data from conversations to train on. However, Shawice's success doesn't just arise from access to a huge dataset. There are also some careful architectural tweaks. Part of the problem with early chatbots is their lack of understanding of the context of a conversation, which prevents conversations from going deeper than a single call and response. If you're statistically associating or hard-coding a single response to a single input, that's not really dialogue at all, because the system has no way of remembering what's come before and no real understanding of what it's talking about, which makes conversations disjointed and frustrating. Shawice includes a context vector mechanism, which keeps track of the broad topic of conversation, alongside another set of attributes for the person it's talking to. Using sentiment analysis, it determines the user's mood and adapts its responses accordingly, a form of robotic empathy. For example, Shawice will change the subject if the conversation seems to have stalled, or switch to active listening mode if the user is already engaged. If they're telling a story, for example, Shawice won't interrupt, it will just go, mm-hmm, yeah, etc. Alongside this, Shawice can perform a number of different tasks, such as generating its own content. Telling stories or jokes, for example, retrieving information like Siri or Alexa would, or recommending songs. Developers must strike a balance between quickly competing these tasks and maximising CPS, but they feel that the more that Shawice is capable of, the more worthwhile conversations it will have. Now it remains to be seen how far, even with this clever architecture, the neural network approach can lead. Can you really encode all of the nuances of human interaction into matrices and vectors and vast networks of statistical associations and weights? Can you solve the problem of contextual understanding? Is there enough data in the world to do this? Or is having a true AI companion a problem that requires something like a general human-level AI? Microsoft views the fact that one user spent 29 hours talking to Shawis, over 7,500 conversational turns, as the ideal state of affairs. They are intent on maximising CPS. The presenter at ICML, where I saw this stuff presented, noted that it's understandable that some people might prefer talking to Shawis than to other humans. After all, most people you meet on a day-to-day basis aren't fanatically obsessed with keeping you talking, and they don't possess infinite reserves of patience to comfort you if you're sad, or talk about your favourite band. So it's very possible that, particularly if you're vulnerable or isolated or lacking in social skills, you might well prefer interacting with the chatbots of 10 or 20 years in the future over any given person. And if it sounds far-fetched that anyone might make this kind of choice one day, just remember how effective Eliza was, and how willing a lot of people were to anthropomorphise even a basic programme and how this might change with something more sophisticated. Yet we have already seen in YouTube's video recommendation algorithm, for example, the potential consequences of serving people whatever's most calculated to keep them on the platform. We have already seen in the carefully optimised feeds of Facebook and Twitter the social and psychological consequences of algorithms designed to distract. In the attention economy, engagement is the most valuable commodity. It means eyeballs on advertisements, and of course, endless streams of data about the users that can tailor the targeting of those adverts. In trying to empathise with and understand its users, their emotional reactions and their interests, bots like Shawice inevitably build up personality profiles that are extremely valuable to advertisers. 
So perhaps your new best friend is also trying to sell you something. Nudge, influence and manipulate your behaviour in ways that help its owners to make a profit. And one does wonder about the hyper-engaged users. Microsoft are happy if you prefer talking to showers than any human you know. This reminds me of a little metaphorical story from a Douglas Coupland novel. People used to feed sugar water to birds in winter to help keep them alive. When people started replacing sugar with NutraSweet and doing the same thing, it led to disaster. The birds were eating and obeying their instincts, and they thought they were full due to the taste, and so they starved to death with full bellies due to the lack of nutrition. Now this might not be ornithologically accurate, but the broader point he was making about the perceived hollowness of culture and certain types of human relationship, providing a substitute that tastes like the real thing, is actually just enough to prevent you from seeking out the real thing without actually nourishing you at all. Might such a perfect social bot instead serve to keep users isolated from real human connections? Of course, perhaps such isolated users make for better consumers. These are some of the perverse incentives that can arise when you tell an algorithm to optimise for one metric at all costs. To the researcher's credit, the final word in the archive paper that describes some of the features of Showice does note the ethical concerns surrounding this technology, and suggests that guidelines for the design of these algorithms should be implemented. In a world where algorithms increasingly influence and nudge our behaviours, growing ever more subtle and sophisticated than their ability to tap into human psychology, this conversation is long overdue. As with so many technologies, conversational agents are dual use, and we must make sure that they are used wisely. I have to admit I was a little shocked when I heard the Showice developer discuss the idea that people might prefer to talk to their chatbot than humans in such a blasé fashion. And yet this is the dream. Yuval Noah Harari, the author of those very popular Homo sapiens and Homo Deus books, referred to this vision of the future as, quote, what happens when we can make machines that know us better than we know ourselves? As if the end goal, or maybe just the end of the process that will happen regardless of whether we have a goal or not, is going to be, in some sense, replacing people. In the context of memorials, this replacement can almost form a sort of sickening promise that technology is going to allow you or your loved ones to cheat death. In perhaps its darkest note, the Eternomy website that we talked about, it informs you that regardless of what physical evidence you leave behind, eventually we are all forgotten. But from a certain philosophical perspective, we're not just forgotten because there's a lack of data about us, we're forgotten because we become irrelevant. Inheriting the earth from those who came before us is the first half of the contract. The second half is leaving it to those who will follow us, and accepting our own drift into irrelevance and obscurity. In Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, where the philosopher king reflected on the nature of life, death, emotions and mortality, he notes that even people who were once world famous are gradually being forgotten. He said, quote, And as for the rest, as soon as they have breathed out their breath, they are gone, and no man speaks of them. And to conclude the matter, what even is an eternal remembrance? A mere nothing. If you're a true believer, and you will need a lot of faith in the singularity, you probably expect some form of digital immortality to arrive just in time for you, anyway. A full brain upload, working cryogenics, a digital ghost, so many different promises that you'll be able to cheat death, somehow extend your impression on this earth a little while longer. Of course, you don't have to be so extreme and starry-eyed. In the digital age, which saves publicly accessible information about most of us forever, we're surrounded by digital ghosts already. Memorialised Facebook accounts, old YouTube videos, old podcasts. 
Perhaps something like Eternomy could provide a way to manage that legacy in a way that's a little less impersonal, or leaves it a slightly more coherent impression of you than your unfiltered Twitter feed might. But it's still difficult, looking at the technology that we have at the moment, to shake the feeling that there are worse things than being forgotten, and better ways to be remembered.